ourselves every day. Two ways to look at life. You owe me. Listen to my ideas. Listen to what I want. I'm going to get mad. You owe me. The other way. I owe everybody. What can I do to help make it better? Two ways to look at life. You heard John Piper. In the missional church movement, this man is just honored with his theology. Now retired. But just honored. Because he has led people to understand in the churches, it's not about you sitting in the pew. It's not about you sitting in the chair. It's not about you sitting in the bleachers. It's not about who owes me. It's what Paul said, I am a debtor to everyone. Or he said to all people, I owe everyone. What can I do for you? You see, if you take the first position, then what you do when things are happening, you just stand around and see what can be done for you and the way you want it. If you take the other position, you're very active seeing what can you do for others. Matt, last week, preached a wonderful sermon from Mark, the 10th chapter. In the 43rd verse, he read to us Jesus' words. Jesus' words said, I come not to be served, but to serve others. Is the popcorn better than the words of Jesus? Is the coffee and water better than the words of Jesus? Is your entertainment and joy better than the words of Jesus? Today we are going to see that Jesus is going to speak to us very deeply. This week and next week, it's like He points His finger at me. And if you listen, I believe you will think He points His finger at you. And when we get into the passage, you'll see He says these very strong, profound, insightful thoughts to people who go to church every Sunday and do it incorrectly. Oh, listen. Listen. If this is your first time to be with us in Connection, I welcome you. I'm Mike Davis, lead pastor. Glad to be here with you. and Glad you're here. We're normally turned the other way, but school had something go on, and, and they're good at working with us, and we just able to pull the bleachers out and turn it this way. But usually it's, it's, it's reversed. And so I appreciate you being here. If you're first time and you got to sit on the bleachers, if I'd been here soon enough, I was going to get a mic. The guys and the gals back there at noon, I was going to say, all connection people that are younger, and you sit on the bleachers. Let new people sit in the chairs, but didn't get announced that. So if you're new and you're sitting on the bleachers, normally we don't use bleachers. We have chairs for everyone. And we're glad you're here. I want to thank the folks who made the adjustments. Boy, a lot of adjustments being made. And uh, being made basically because we realize anybody new comes, this is the only Sunday we may get them to be with us. And so we've got to make sure everything is right. And I appreciate some of you are nodding. Others of you are going, huh? But if you understand, we want it adequate. Because we never know that first person. And we need to make sure we've done the best we can for God in making the environment appropriate. Thank you for those who have helped. I appreciate that, okay? Tell you what, let's just pray. Would you bow with me? Father, I thank You for this time. I thank You that, that we're going to get a chance to look into Your Word. And Father, You're going to confront us. I know You're going to do that. You've already confronted me this week. Or really, a few weeks ago, whenever You, you, you took this passage and You had me to write things about it. And I pray that You help us. That we might see from the words of Jesus that He's talking about others and not ourselves. And God, it's hard for me to get my eyes off myself. 
It's hard for me to get my eyes off the way I think and the way I want and what I'm used to doing in my schedule and my time. Father, help us to hear Jesus' words and adapt our lives to what you would want. God, just guide us. Give us insight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like you to turn to Luke, the 14th chapter. In a little bit, we'll put them on the screens. But if you've got God's Word, I'd like you to open it. If you don't have a Bible, we invite you to take one of the New Testaments that are in the hallway on the table as you leave. And next week, come back and use that. Because there are things that are very important in the passage. And you may want to underline something, circle something. And then later when you read it, that will stand out to you. But for you who have God's Word, Luke, the 14th chapter... Uh, Remember, remember in our song, Come Away, oh, such a, such a super-duper song. Super-duper. Is that a good expression? Yes, a superly wonderful, insightful song. And remember, it's Jesus' words to us. I told my wife, I made a note, I want to tell Christine, boy, I love it. You know, you know she just doesn't make simple screens. And those screens were like quotation screens to me. And it was like Jesus was speaking and I listened to that song five or six times before we even worshiped today. And, and, and boy, it just spoke great. And Jesus said, I have a plan for you. Now listen, I have a plan for you, but, but, it's full of me. I want His plan to be full of me. Jesus says, I have a plan for you, but it's full of him. Him. And we're going to look at Luke's words. And that's what Luke finds out that Jesus tried to help people understand. That life and our plan in life, our living life, is not to be full of us. It's to be full of what God would want in our lives. And here in Luke, Luke is just a man. In the very first chapter, he says, I'm investigating the things that we have heard. Him and another guy and other people have heard. Luke has went to the place where Jesus walked. Luke has went and talked to Jesus' disciples. Luke never saw Jesus. Luke didn't talk to Jesus. But Luke was like you and I. He heard the message about Jesus. He gave his life to Christ as Lord to become a follower. And a man is paying him apparently to go and check it out. And so he's going to communities where he's heard Jesus was at and Jesus did things. And he's asking questions. And everything he's telling us today has to be told by somebody else who was there. And Luke is going to share with us the words of Jesus. So look there in the 14th chapter, the first verse. If you don't have your Bibles, look on the screen. We've got it. It says, one Sabbath day. Now, let me just say this again. Most of you heard me say this. They met together on the Sabbath day for their worship, their time together, okay? And so on a Sabbath day, we don't meet on the Sabbath day. That's the seventh day of the week. That's a Saturday. And some Christians have trouble with that. Some Christians want to argue about that. You should meet on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Don't break one of the Ten Commandments, okay? But the Sabbath was the holy day for the Jew. It represented the seventh day when God rested. We never chose Sunday. Connection never chose Sunday to worship. Okay? We could worship on Saturday. But why do Christians normally worship on a Sunday? Nothing in the Bible says we have to. But we see the early followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. When do they meet? They meet on the Lord's Day. The first day of the week. Because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. Sunday became special to followers of Jesus because it represented His resurrection from the dead, which is extremely important. Paul says if He didn't raise from the dead, everything in our faith is in vain. Somebody says, well, it wouldn't be bad. Jesus said, be honest. We ought to be honest. Well, you know people aren't honest. You're not even honest. Now, some of you are going to get mad at me, see? Jesus rose from the dead to show us He's defeated life, death. In other words, He offers life. Our sin condemned us to die, to be separated from God forever. Jesus offers us new life, not only from death, but in this life. Your marriage can be made new. Your own personality can be made new. The way you behave can be made new. The way you spend your money can be made new. The way you handle things can be made new. The words you speak can be made new. And so we worship on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. 
Because we remember that Jesus brings newness to that which death makes ugly. And so on the first day of the week, on the Sabbath, one Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees and the people were watching closely. After worship, because Jesus would go to the temple, he'd go to the synagogues, this wouldn't be in the temple, this would be in the synagogue on his way to Jerusalem. And after church, Pharisees said, hey, why don't you come to my house to eat? I've invited some friends. And so Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee. Now, who is a Pharisee? And he's not just a Pharisee. He's the leader of a group of Pharisees. He's a man with clout and understanding and wisdom. And his track record said when they sat down to take a vote, they said, we want to make you leader of all of us. See? And so this man is really into the Jewish faith. And Jesus is going to be there and He's going to get encountered by religious traditionalism. And some of you might say, if you've been coming to Connection in the last few months, because Jesus really hits this traditional religious attitude of life as He's heading to Jerusalem. People have decided they know how to worship God or they know how to live life and Jesus is not doing it the way they do it and He is not saying it the way they say it. And so they confront Him or they get angry at him. And we're going to see he has that happening here. Now someone may ask, well, why does he go to the, the leader of the Pharisee's house? I mean, Jesus, he knows people. Okay, why does he even go? I wouldn't go, we would say. Because you see, he's compelled. He's compelled to go. He knows they've given him trouble all this time. But he loves all people. And he even loves religious traditionalists. He loves people who are locked into their traditions and they can't do it any different. And they can't say it any different because that's where they're comfortable. And he goes. He goes. He's not afraid. He goes. He's not wanting to cause trouble or confront. He goes because he is compelled. He is, but that's like sometimes in your life. You do not want to do things for the Lord. You don't want to live a certain way for God. You don't want to involve yourself with certain people. But you see, you need to be, feel that compelling of God. Because you are the ones He uses to touch lives. You are the people who will impact the lives of people who are not followers of Jesus. That's why you need to be careful of settling for second best. And low quality. And the sad thing is, if you go to a lot of churches, it's always second best. And low quality. Let the walls be cracked. Let the furniture be wore out. Let the kids have shoddy teachers. Make the presentation poor. It's church. We come because we love Jesus. But you see, we invite new folks and they say, wow, you're worse than the local high school play in your presentation. Well, they're judgmental. Who wants them in our church anyway? You see, Jesus is going to meet this religious, traditional attitude in this place. And we would say, why go there? It's because He's compelled to. He loves all people. And Luke tells us that the religious traditionalists, look at the end of verse 1, were watching Him closely. Matter of fact, if you study theology... People who study theology would tell you from the way, the vernacular that that's written in the Greek, they were setting a trap for him. They are tricking him. They want to catch him to do something or say something that they don't think is appropriate so they can say, Jesus is always like that. We ought to get rid of him. They're watching him closely. Whoever is there, maybe it's a, maybe it's a Jewish leader that converted to Christianity to become a follower of Jesus, and Luke's talking to him. Maybe Jesus brought somebody with him. But whoever was there would say, I watched, man. Jesus is there. People are looking at him. He talks some, and I'm watching everybody. And you know what I noticed? Man, they're talking. They're watching him closely. They're trying to maybe even trap him. Look at verse 2. There was a man there whose arm and legs were swollen. Jesus asked the Pharisee and the expert in religious law. Experts in religious law. In other words, those who ought to know God's will. Is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? And when they refused to answer, why wouldn't they answer him? He just asked them a question. You know why they wouldn't answer him? Because if 
they answer him, they're going to demonstrate and say, you can't do this. They're going to show no compassion. Because this is a man who's got an illness. And if they say, yes, it's okay, they're going to agree with him. And you know what? No one likes to agree with somebody who's right when they're wrong, but wrong is their comfort. You ever raised a child? Okay, thank you. See, some of you know. Nobody ever wants to agree with someone who's right when they're wrong, but the wrong is where they find comfort. He goes on. Well, I tell you, no, let me, let me show you. Luke, go to the next screen. Luke 13. This is a chapter before. This is a few days before. We don't know how long. Jesus had the same encounter in another community with the Pharisees. Look what it says. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant. In other words, he's much displeased. Jesus has healed a man. Look what he says. That Jesus had healed her on, or healed a woman. Healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. See, traditionally the Jew would say, no, you can't heal on the Sabbath. That's work. They don't care. No compassion about the person who's hurting. Okay? And so they want to hold Jesus to their ideas. That's what traditionalists want to do. We want to hold following Christ our ideas. You see, I want to do this on Sunday, and so I'm going to hold Christ that this is okay. I want to spend my money this way, and so I'm going to hold Christ and what He'd want me to spend my money that, hey, come on, this is okay. See, and they wanted to hold Jesus to their traditions. Jesus healed that person, if you remember when I talked about it, and she was full of rejoicing, and in the same room, the same experience, the religious traditionalists were all indignant or very displeased. You see, Jesus can be in our presence, and if we're caught up in our ideas and our traditions, we get very much displeased. No matter if what He is leading us to do is the right thing, if it's not our thing. Now look at verse 4, back in Luke 14. Jesus touched the sick man, healed him, and sent him away. And then he turned to them and said, Which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? Now look what he says your work is. See, they don't want to help somebody who's hurting with a sickness. He says, If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out. Again, they could not answer. In other words, Jesus said, Let me ask you a question. Come on, you said we shouldn't heal this guy. Now they haven't said that here. But he knows their attitude. He's experienced it before. These are religious traditionalists. And he says, come on now. He says, if your son fell into a pit or your cow did, you'd do a little effort to get him out, right? They're in need and you'd do something. And they're all going, "Uh uh-huh. That's right. No, they're not, are they? They won't answer. You see, because when somebody's right and you're wrong, but your comfort zone is in your wrong, you don't want to agree with the person who's right. And they don't want to do that. After 42 years of watching religious traditionalists, here are some conclusions I have come to. Look on the screen. Look at the first one. They are usually defined by what they are against. I have really had to work on that in the last six, seven years. Religious traditionalists are usually defined by what they are against. We're against abortion. Now, I don't think you should abort a baby, but some people do. And God loves you. He forgives. He cares. And one day you can see your baby in heaven. Laura had a miscarriage, I think, one day based upon the Scriptures because that was life in her womb. One day we will see that child in heaven, okay? I don't want to get on that. But some people are identified. I'm always against abortion. I'm against substance abuse. I'm against sexual abuse. I'm against pornography. See, religious traditionalists are always identified by what they're against. Not by their, the compulsion that they must love if they're against pornography, they must love the person who's in to peddling child pornography. If they're against some other thing that is bad, they must love abortion. They must love the abortion doctor. See, and so we begin to know, you know, I know what they're against. You know what the world needs to know we're for, how we identify God's love in action. That's how we ought to be identified. That's how Jesus was always identified. Did He take positions? Did He talk about things that were wrong? Sure He did. But you see, He's in the very house of a man whom He knows is going, and His buddies are going to judge Him as He's, in, he's wrong. But you see, 
Jesus is compelled to love them because what identifies Jesus is not what He's against. And He died for our sins. It's what He stands for. And that is the love of God that the world isn't seeing. Next time you go to work, see if you can sort of sense out how many of your fellow workers say they're followers of Jesus, Christians, and see how many of them at the water fountain are talking and saying hateful things about people they work with. What identifies you? What identifies you? Look at the second thing I've noticed about religious traditionalists. What they use, what they will talk about repentance, but they don't practice repentance. They will tell everybody else, you've got to turn from your sins. You've got to repent from your sins. You, you are wrong. That's not the right thing to do. You need to change. You need to turn. You need to say you're sorry. You need to talk to God. But you know what? You never hear them say, Honey, I, I, I'm sorry I lost my temper. You never hear them saying, you know what? And them showing repentance in their relationships. See, some of you, some marriage is broken up and you, you're still never repented it's broke up. You're still angry at your ex-mate instead of saying, I'm sorry it didn't work. And you can't say it's sorry because you're saying it's their fault, see? And it may be their fault. But see, religious traditionalists can never come to the place to say, you know, I'm wrong and I'm sorry. Their pride always says, I don't have to say that. That's what happens. Look at the third thing on the screen. They want easy answers over messy lives. Religious traditionalists want to do what's easy. They want church to be easy. They want ministry to be easy. They want people who come not to be hard. How do we answer that question? What do I do when that, that man and that girl's living together? That man and that woman's living together? What do I do when I know they're really abusing a substance? How do I relate to them? You know, Laura and I have had people who practice a gay lifestyle come into our home there on, on Jameson Boulevard and eat with us. And if you drove by and you saw their vehicle or saw them walking up, you might say, what in the world? See, religious traditionalists, they don't want the messy life. They want the easy answers. I'm going to tell you, come on. If you're probably 14, 15 years old, you know this world's messy. Matter of fact, you probably laugh at your parents because they think it's, it's perfect. And you keep telling them you don't know the real world. Religious traditionalists like to get in a huddle, a holy huddle like worship on Sunday and just do their thing and leave the mess out there. That's what they did in the synagogues. And Jesus went out there. And that's what made them mad. Look at the fourth thing I wrote. They tend to make fear their weapons. I'm going to tell you, religious traditionalists keep saying, well, you're not of God. They'll use the weapon fear. Nobody ought to go into your church. Nobody ought to follow you. Man, this all sounds like a cult to me. That's what Jesus was to those people. Fear. They bully with fear. They bully. If you don't get baptized the way we say, if you don't go the way we say, if you don't do it the way we say. I was in a, an establishment. They said, you guys have Wednesday night Bible study, don't you? I said, no. You don't. How can you have church without Wednesday night Bible study? I see most of you say, I don't want a Wednesday night Bible study. Okay. But I'm telling you, religious traditionalists, they work out of fear. They tell you, how can you be doing God's will if you're not doing it the way we say Look at the, the last thing I've got there. They confuse biblical principles with ways things are done. In other words, they say, God would want it done this way. The Bible says, but they always are against methods. Let me give you an illustration. The Bible says, we all, every person of God, should lift their voice and make a joyful noise that's sing unto God. In context, it's sing. Every child of God, but you see, religious traditionalists say, but that's only meaningful if you do it our style. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, they take, they take biblical truths, but they say they're tied to the style or the method of doing it. And if you don't do it their style, their method, <coughs> excuse me, they have trouble with you. Look on your message map. Look at the first blank, if you would. Fill it in. It's on the screen while I take a drink. It says, religious people... <coughs> excuse me, like to keep an eye on everybody else to correct them instead of to love them. 
Yeah, keep an eye on everybody else, especially in this day. You never know who you might have to tackle. I mean, Laura and I go to a movie theater, and I'm telling you, I'm always looking around. And when I hear somebody else come in, I'm looking around. And I tell her, when we're there, you can ask her. I say, now listen, if somebody gets a gunshot, you either go to the floor or go to that exit. I'm looking if I can jump on them. Okay? And I said, I'll probably get shot. Now, I don't know. I guess somebody come with a gun. My knees will probably start shaking. I'll hide under seats too. But I'm already trying to decide what I'm going to do. See, I'm already trying. I don't know if I'll ever do that because I've never been in that situation. But what I'm trying to say is religious traditionists, they look around at people and they just want to correct people. We need to look around at people to love them. Oh man, did you hear how that guy spoke to that guy? Hey guys, how you doing? Let me buy you. Oh man, that person's in tears. Hey, you okay? You see, because a person's emotions are real. Religious traditions just look around. Religious people just look around to correct people instead of looking around to love them. Look at verse 7. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying... Now look, He's going to get into some teaching now. But you got who He's with. People, it's got to be done their way. When Jesus noticed that all... Well, let me ask you. Who am I sitting with? This is the house of the Pharisee. Are you the Pharisee people? Are you the religious traditionalists? Are you going to do it your way? Are you going to do it Jesus' way? See, because this is where he's going to teach. Somebody's telling Luke, this must have been very important. I'm probably doing a poor job explaining it. But it must have been sort of profound and confrontational. Because somebody said, let me tell you about whenever he came to this leader of the Pharisee's house. And, and this is what happened. Verse 7, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. So here's some advice from Jesus, okay? Here's some advice from Jesus. And it's advice in regard to where you sit. Isn't that funny? You mean God cares about where we sit? Now listen, it's much greater than just sitting. But in this situation, it's just sitting. Okay? In other words, Jesus is going to talk about what you do when you sit in a group. You ever think about that when you come to church? How are you going to sit when you come to church? Some of you are getting the idea. I see you grinning. Some of you are going, why? You ever think about it when you come to church, how you sit? You ever think when you, when you go to some fellowship or some party or you're with people, where do you position yourself? I haven't had anybody said it here because I don't seem to be a socially involved community, but the community I came from, people who didn't know me that was ever in that community said, are you a pastor or are you a politician? Because I'd say hello to my guests, and I try to find a person sitting by themselves. I try to find a person with a frown on their face. I try to find a person that looked like they were being ignored. And so it looked like I was working the crowd. You understand? I don't ever want to be a pastor who works a crowd. I don't think it'd be a bad thing to be a politician, stand for what's right if you can. But I don't ever want to be a pastor who works a crowd. Jesus is going to talk about how you relate. How does. You, where, with the position you take when you get with people, how does it affect others? See, some of you are moving on. Now listen, when you come to church, where do you sit? Do you sit in the best seats? Do you sit in the seats that would make other people more comfortable? I've been told some of my family may be here next week because it's Mother's Day. My family have already been told, when you come to Connection, understand, we may not sit beside each other most likely. Okay? I mean, they understand that. Can you imagine they come and I start telling you, listen, my family ought to get to sit together, and I start reserving seats and all that? Who am I thinking about? You or my people? I've seen people move chairs. I've seen people put chairs in the aisles. I've seen people make a comfort for themselves, not even thinking... Am I making it comfortable for anybody else? You see, however Jesus said this, this person telling him is telling Luke years later. Let me tell you what happened. Jesus talked about where you sit when you get with a group of people. 
Look at the next blank on your message map. Life is a classroom. Next blank on your message map. Life is a classroom. And God's always teaching. And if your eyes are open, there's always something to learn. Even if it's in a negative lesson. Even if it's in a negative lesson. Life's a classroom. And you always got a lesson to learn. Where are you going to put your body? Where are you going to put yourself when you're around people? Look at verse 8. Look what he says. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. Okay? Now, God's plan is humility. That's why he's saying, don't sit in the place of honor. You'll see that, okay? What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Okay? If you don't go with God's plan, which is humility, what God will do is he'll give you some humiliation. Are you following with me? If you can't take advice and learn how to spend your money the correct way, You'll follow your way and you'll face humiliation. Of course, you'll always say it's okay, but you know it's humiliation. If it's that way in your romantic life, it's that way in everything. Jesus is saying, if if you go to, to a gathering and you take the place of honor, listen, there's going to be somebody who's going to be more important than you. And, and the guy in charge or the guy in charge will come and say, hey, would you get up and let so-so? And you go, oh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. See? And you're going to feel humiliated. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean sitting in this seat. Oh, man, I'm so humiliated. Look, he goes on. Then you will be embarrassed. And you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Guys, why didn't you tell me sooner? I would have got that seat. Now I've got to go all the way back over. No, what it is, it connects you. Now I've got to go sit in the front row. You catching this? Because we're not at a wedding feast. We're in what we call a worship to God feast. And how does humility come forth in you? Look at the next message, Matt Blank. God is more concerned about your spiritual character than He is your personal conduct. He's more concerned about your spiritual character than He is your personal conduct. That's why I'm going to tell you, if you don't start with humility, God will bring humiliation into your life. Not because God is a mean God, a bad God, but because God wants you to understand a lesson that you need to learn that little children ought to learn. Parents won't teach their children this. They won't let their children be humiliated by their wrong actions. Parents will make excuses for their children. I'm not talking about three-year-olds and four-year-olds. I'm talking about when they get five, six, seven, and those kids know what they're doing. God is more concerned about His followers' spiritual character than He is their personal comfort. The song we sang, Come Away With Me, Jesus gives us an invitation. He says, it's never too late. I'm telling you today, it's never too late. So He says, come away with me. And I'm inviting you to become a follower of Jesus. It's never too late. We sang, I have a plan for you. And so the next line was, come away with me. You see, Jesus has a plan for you. I want you to know it's never too late. If my words are speaking to your mind, I want you to understand it's never too late. And I want you to understand if my words are speaking to your mind, Jesus has a plan for you. Come away with Him. We sang, open your heart and let me in. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what you've got to decide. That's what these people have to, had to decide. When He was there in person, you and I have to decide now, 2,000 years later, when, listen, it's only His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead who is representing the second person of the Godhead who is speaking to you. Come away with me. It's never too late. It's not man. It's not lady. It's never too late. What a song Thank you, band. Thank you, Matt. Look at verse 10. Instead, what does he say? Look what he says. What Jesus says. Take the lowest place at the foot of the table. In other words, when you get with a group of people, let your action demonstrate the humility that ought to come from a relationship with God. When we come into this place, when, when we go to our new property, take the lesser place. Give the better place. 
for someone else. Listen to me. Somebody says he's only talking about seeds. No. It's what I've learned to do in my marriage. Take the lesser place. If you see me with my wife, I make funny comments and I make sort of silly humorous comments, I hope, but not hurtful. Sometimes I'll sound like she's sour grapes and I'm sweet apples, okay? But you hang out with us. She's the sweet apples that I demonstrate. And I wish I would have learned that when I had my first two children. I didn't, folks. And they are totally different than my last two. Because God taught me humility first or else humiliation is what you're going to get. You see, it's much greater. This is easy. This is easy. In a church... Sit as far forward as you can. Let the other people have those choice seats in the back. That's easy. Unless you're a religious traditionalist. But now, learning to be less and your mate be more, that, that's, that takes work. It takes work to go to work and you be less. And the people you work with are going to feel like they're more. Not because the boss made them feel like they're more. Because you made them feel like they're more. You see, he's just talking about seats. I wonder how many times this has been preached in churches <laughs> the very next Sunday. <laughs> the very next Sunday. <laughs> you know what happened the very next Sunday? You know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Verse 10. Instead, take the lowest places at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, Friend, we have a better place for you. And then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. In other words, what he's saying, listen, if you're at a literal party, a wedding feast, and, and, and you have to sit at the end of the table, and the host comes, he's going to say, you know, there's room up there. He evaluates his importance. We already know it does that because earlier Jesus said if you were sitting in the place of honor and somebody more distinguished came, he'd ask you to move. But he looks and he says, man, there's a better seat up here. What's Mike doing here? Hey, Mike, you know, you're my buddy. Come on, sit right here. Boy, I walk up here and in front of everybody and I say, woohoo, Jack, you're back here. <laughs> Look who I am, man. The guy loves me. Now, is Jesus saying we're doing that in church? Here's what he's saying. God is watching God is watching, and if He sees your humility, if He sees your humility, God will pick you up. And here's what will happen in a few years. Your son will say, Dad, someday, I hope my relationship with God is like yours. You take that place of humility and all you do at work, whatever, someday God's going to lift you up. Three or four of those employees are going to say, this is a hard job. I would have quit years ago except you're the breath of fresh air. You ignore humility, God will bring some humiliation into your life. You honor humility in all things. And God will pick you up. And people will see something about you because Jesus makes us new when we get full of Him. Look at the next, the next verse, verse 11. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay? If you're proud of always pushing and getting your way, let me tell you, I can, ha I can handle these people. And you're always pushing your way and you end up getting your way, guess what? You probably now always are pushing people. And you're pushing your way. And you know you're not going to let anybody manhandle you. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what. You keep pushing and you don't have humility you're going to be humiliated. You're going to look at your children and say, why are they acting like that? You're going to look at your marriage and say, why is it not so special? You're going to look at your life and say, why is it hard for me to experience what God's got? And you may be a very successful person in the world of economics. But in here, you feel the humiliation. Look at the next 
blank on your message map. Jesus says you either start with humility and then God raises you up, or you start with pride and God knocks you down. It's not because He's a bad God now. Don't get that wrong. It's because He's more concerned about your spiritual character than He is your personal comfort. Please hear that. It's not because He's a bad God. It's not because He likes kicking people. If He did that, why did He die on the cross for us? God stepped out of heaven in the second person of the Godhead as Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and He died on the cross for you. But in regards to humility... In regards to humility. If you start with humility, God will raise you up. If you start with pride, He's going to knock you down. Look on the screen. Look what Solomon said. Proverbs 13.10 Pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. Man, I wish I would have learned that verse 40 years ago. I'm married 43 years. I wish I'd learned that verse before I got married. Pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. People who have no humility cannot take advice. They, they want a better life, but they won't take advice from people who can help them experience whatever part of their life they want better. And so they have this conflict with themselves and with anybody who would try to give them a little bit of advice. Look on the screen again. Look what James, the brother of Jesus, said. Look what he says. But he gives, he's talking about God, gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. Now I want you to understand, you're going to see the next, rest of this verse, the evil desire is to allow pride to be in charge of my life. Okay? In other words, God gives us grace. He, he gives us another chance, another chance to overcome that evil desire of pride. And the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. You see, the grace of God is that apparently in your life, some of us needed to hear this. Whenever I prepared this, I'm telling you, whenever I did this sermon, afterwards, Laura had a much better relationship with me because God spoke to me about that. See? And look on the screen, 1 Peter 5, 5, 6. Matt used this last week. This is from the mouth of Peter, follower of Jesus. In the same way, you younger men. Now look, we're going to talk about humility and pride. So now we're talking about you young guys. And in this world, there's no generation gap, is there? In the same way, you younger men must accept the authority of the elders. You must honor those who are more mature. Now I'm going to tell the older one how to do it. Now listen, young folks have great advice from missional churches, and we must listen to them. It's hard for older folks to let young folks have that. But he says, in the same way you younger men must accept the authority of the elders and all of you serve each other in humility for God opposes the proud but favors the humble. So what's he say? So humble yourself under the mighty power of God and at the right time He will lift you up in honor. Now in church, I'm going to tell you it's not only in church, you get a new job, you the young guy. You may be older than the person who's worked there a little bit longer than you, but you the young guy. It's at work. It's in the family. It's in all our experiences. God opposes us who are proud. And if we will honor Him by showing humility in all of life, in our family, in our work, in our school, in our play, God will lift us up when? At the right time. He will. God always dignifies people who live with humility. But I'm going to tell you this. I talked about watching religious traditionalists. My experience, 63 years watching people. Of course, the first few years, I was just selfish like everybody else. But I do not think any of us are humble by nature. I do not. Even the person who looks the most passive and the most compliant is not humble by nature. Because you see, Sin has corrupted us. And we end up saying, it's all about me. What about me? How about me? If someone comes up to you and says, I'm humble, listen, they just disqualify themselves. <laughs> you catch that? I like what I read, I heard somewhere, I didn't read, I heard somewhere, said this, we are proud people pursuing humility by the grace of God. I have to fight this all the time in my life. Sometimes I just want to argue hard. And I have to try to slow my emotions down, my thoughts down. See how I can bring that humility in there. Try to explain the situation. 
and in the end, go probably with a compromise. Because you see, people without humility, they don't compromise. They always win. They're bullies. And I'm telling you, I wish I'd learned this when I first started fathering, when I first was married. Nothing wrong with sharing opinion, giving foundation for your opinion. But I'm telling you, what we need to say sometimes is, God, I don't feel very humble at this place, man. I don't want to show any humility. Help me. Not change my wife, change my kids. Help me. Because probably the greatest thing is not what the final decision is, it's how we arrived at the final decision. Help me. Is my humbleness really for others or is it just about me and my religious tradition or my tradition? And I want you to understand, I told you when we got on this before, it's not just church religious tradition. It's your religious tradition and how you do your hobby, the sports, how you spend your money, how you live. It's the tradition you developed. And it rules over what God wants. Look on the screen. Philippians 2. Look what Paul tells us we can do. He says in verse 3, don't be selfish. Well, don't be selfish means be unselfish. Be unselfish when you come in and take a seat in connection. Be unselfish when you go eat today. Be unselfish when you're with family, when you're at work. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. In the Hebrew, that means don't try to bring glory to yourself. That's hard not to do, see? Especially if you have very much success in your life. Don't try to impress others. Look what he says. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. You're in line. Who's the most important person in line? You're in a marriage. Who's the most important person in marriage? You're in a family. Who's the most important person in the family? You're at work. Who's the most important person at work? Be humble thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests. He's not saying don't be concerned about your interests. Nobody should let people do wrong. Okay? Most of the time our humility is not asked in the face of somebody committing a sin. It's just in relationships. He's saying, but take an interest, or don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. In other words, make the interest of others your interest. That's what he's saying. Everything I do in connection. Folks, if it ever is to serve Mike Davis, I give you permission to get me alone. Funny, buy me a hamburger and french fries because I'm a lot better to talk to. But get me alone. And say, you know, I think what you did was only for yourself. And if I can't tell you it was because I'm thinking of somebody else or I'm thinking of new people or I'm thinking of young people, everything I try to judge my decision on is for that. Everything I try to judge my relationship with the Lord. Now listen, I get angry and upset, but when God speaks to me, I try to come back. What will cause intimacy to be better between her and I? And folks, if I stay on pride, that does not build intimacy. It just bullies her into being quiet. He says, make the interest of others your interest. And then he closes with verse 5. Where does he base all this on? Because Peter walked with Jesus. And you see, the guy who talked to Luke was there when Jesus said all this about humility. He says, you must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had. You see, Jesus is our example. Not Mike Davis. Not someone else. God Jesus is my example. It's not to make my marriage better. It's not to make people feel comfortable. It's not so people will say I'm humble. Jesus is my example. You know why I will put humility first, others first? Because I want to be lockstep behind Jesus. And whenever I get off the track, if I talk to God, He'll say, hey, wait a minute, you're over here. There's where Jesus' path is. And i got to get back on the path. Sometimes it's a few minutes, sometimes it's a few hours, and sometimes it's a days. But He always, by His grace, if I've been willing to repent, has got me back on the path. He'll do that for every one of us. Look at the last blank on your message map. Oh, this is so important. Look at it, please. Even if you're not filling them out. This is what I desire for connection. 
when I did this sermon, I closed, I said, what can I say to get this all across? Because some people are going to, it's not going to make a bit of difference in their mind. This is what I desire for connection. A community of faith where humility is the key characteristic that others see. That's the key characteristic that I would want others to see. Because that's the example of Christ. I got written there. If we allow God to build this in us, this character of humility, then others will come to be around it. Because I'm going to tell you, a lot of folks are living in a family with no humility, full of pride. A lot of people working in places with no humility, full of pride. A lot of people have friends, so-called friends, full of a lot of pride and a little humility. A lot of people, all they see is the harshness and the bulliness that comes from pride. You know what I want them to feel when they come into connection? I want it to be like it smells humble in here. I'm so comfortable. Now listen to me. You who've been with us for five and a half years, it's not just to do it in here. It's so now where we go work or we go to school and we go to play, they start saying, I know what church you go to. You go to Connection. Because you see, I've watched two or three or four of you. And you affect an environment totally different than most church people. Learn and practice humility here. And you will take it with you when game time comes. And game time is not here, folks. Game time is in your family, in your work, where you play, where you go to school. Jesus has a plan for you. But that plan is full of Himself. Now next week is Mother's Day. At 10.30, I'm going to show my first Mother's Day video. I want to put them both till the end because I'm going to show two. And the first one's so good. So I'm going to tell you, you got family, if you're a mom, get your family here at 10.30 so they can see it, okay? And I'll tell you something, moms. It's, it's known in, in the world that most children will come, if mom will ask them, on Mother's Day than even Easter and Christmas just because it's Mother's Day. You want to give me something for Mother's Day? Hey, come to Connection with me. So invite your kids. Do we have any questions? Are there any questions? Okay, let's bow together for prayer and then we're done. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for, thank you for Luke's investigation. Thank you for the person who paid attention and was able to share with Luke in regard to the words Jesus said. And Father, may those words have impact into our lives. It's for Jesus' sake we ask this of you. Amen.